0: Hi, you're listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. We're releasing our sermons so that no matter where you were Friday, you can enjoy a piece of Shabbat today. So take a deep breath, relax, and enjoy some words from Rabbi Lizzie.
1: So I, I got the same notification on my phone that many of you got at one in the afternoon today letting me know that... Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old, now now 18-year-old, who shot and killed two people and injured a third in Kenosha, Wisconsin, during the protests after Jacob Blake was was shot multiple times by police, that he would be acquitted on all counts. Who knows what I was going to drash about before 1 p.m. <laughs> um, and I'm disappointed, as I imagine many of you are, that this was the verdict the jury unanimously arrived at. I haven't I haven't really had the time since then to fully sort of take in all the articles and all the op-eds and all the assessments and all of the sort of debriefing of this moment. Um, but I know that when it feels like the world is spinning out of control, I like to find my bearings in Torah and not to be swayed by the constant winds of Current events as they play out at the speed of my newsfeed screen, and therefore that my mind and heart are trying to keep up with, but actually the human mind and heart is not designed to process information as quickly as it is delivered to us by all of those media. Um, and so I try to root in what my people have said about moments like this in times long, long, long preceding this moment. So I want to learn a little Torah with you right now. Is that okay? So this week's reading begins with Jacob and route to reunite with his twin brother Esau from whom he ran away decades ago after stealing Esau's blessing, actually like multiple blessings. And so the text describes that Jacob is really scared. And I'm going to come back to this. It says he was scared and distressed. And so in his fear, he divides up his camp, divides up his family, And a lot of his inner monologue is actually in the text of the Torah. He thinks if Esau comes to attack one camp, then the other camp can escape. And so Jacob then sends gifts ahead of him with messengers, hundreds of goats and rams and camels and bulls. And the job of the messengers is to go on ahead to Esau and let Esau know that Jacob is coming to him in peace, that he is not coming to lie to him or cheat him, Which is important because Jacob knows that his reputation as a liar and a cheat precedes him. (laughs) And so he is sharing his wealth that he has acquired over these decades and, frankly, probably feels awfully guilty about. And he wants to make it right with the person whose birthright he stole. And then finally, he prays. He prays to God to keep him safe. And this is all sort of to win his brother's favor because last he heard, his brother wanted to kill him. So now I'm going to read to you from Genesis 33 after Jacob spends a rough night on the Jabbok river bank. So he wakes up and the text says, and I'm just like reading the straight translation, looking up, Jacob saw Esau coming accompanied by 400 men. So he divides up the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maids, putting the maids and their children first, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph last. And he himself goes ahead and he bows low seven times, until he was near his brother, Esau ran toward him and embraced him. And falling on his neck, he kissed him, and they wept. That's a little suspenseful, right? Like Esau's running toward you. you don't know. It could go either way. And, right, aren't you relieved? <laughs> So they catch up what happens next they they catch up Esau's like who are these people Jacob's like it's my wives plural and all of their children you know and 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 take some of what i have and Esau's like no 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 i couldn't i'm fine and Jacob's like no but really and Esau's like no but really you know you you kind of get the sense that the two of them like they they want things to be copacetic and also like they're not totally ready to share all of each other's stuff yet you know and eventually they do go on and then they part ways without incident. You could imagine how this story would have gone differently if Jacob, in his fear, had come to the meeting brandishing a weapon. And then because of having a weapon, sparked equal and opposite fear in his brother, such that instead of embracing in that moment, they both drew their swords. We might not be here today, right? Had had that been Jacob's instinct. The text says, as I mentioned, Jacob was both afraid and distressed. For a book that does not waste a single word, this seems redundant. He was both scared and distressed. So, of course, the commentaries, not missing whenever the Torah appears to be redundant, say it's not redundant at all. It's referring to the fact that Jacob was scared. That he might be killed, but he was distressed that he might have to kill someone. That's what the Midrash says. So he was both scared and distressed that he might himself be killed, but also terrified that he might himself have to cause injury to somebody else. Because Jewish tradition is actually quite clear that if your life is in danger, you defend yourself. The principle is called Rodef. It's, you know, it starts in the Torah, but it's later developed in the Talmud. At which Rodaf means pursuer. So, like, the synagogue up the street from my grandparents' house was Rodefei Tzedek, Pursuers of Justice. Or maybe, you know, like, Rodef Shalom, synagogue, you know, like, Pursuers of Peace. But in this context, Rodef is bad. A Rodef is somebody coming to kill you. Um, And if that is the case, you or a bystander has not just the right, but the obligation to stand up and defend yourself, even to kill them. And that's actually quite clear from the Talmud. That said, Maimonides and and every other source is also very clear that if there is another means by which to defend yourself, which is more moderate than killing, then you must use it. In fact, killing when you could have employed a lesser, a a means of lesser violence, um, in that case, you're actually liable for murder. In that case, the murderer doesn't have the same punishment as like a premeditated murderer. But this is to discourage the use of the defense of Rodef as a way to justify extreme means of self-defense when lesser means would suffice. Furthermore, Jews do not relish weaponry. So often the use of weaponry feels necessary because the person brought it to the party in the first place, right? And so brandishing it then raises the stakes in a situation that would have otherwise felt non-lethal. Still scary, maybe, but not lethal. So Rabbi Shai Held, who I learned from this week, explores this issue, saying that the Jewish antipathy to weapons finds expression in a well-known debate over the laws of Shabbat, the laws of what one is allowed to carry on Shabbat. So you know you're technically in, uh, in an observant community. You're not allowed to carry things on Shabbat. And so there's like, there are all kinds of elaborate ways of getting around that, um, that prohibition. Like the, the one you've probably heard of is an eruv. And if you build an eruv around a community, it's like, you know, some kind of demarcation that, that makes, instead of the community, a whole bunch of different houses and synagogues and spaces, it demarcates the whole place as one house, one big house. And so you're allowed to carry things within it. Um, and that's one way of getting around it. But another way of getting around it is trying to um, trying to define the thing that you're carrying as that you're not carrying it at all. You're just wearing it. So, you know, my brother-in-law, he lives in, in Hyde Park where there is not an Eruv. If he wants to carry his keys back and forth to Shul, if he wants to, like, lock the door to his house and walk to Shul, he uses the key as a belt buckle. So he wears it. And therefore, it is no longer a key, it is a belt buckle, which is clothing. And that's how you get around it. So there, there, you know, this is all sort of developed in the Talmud where they're discussing what you're allowed to carry on Shabbat. So the Mishnah teaches that a person should not go out on Shabbat wearing a sword, a bow, a shield, a lance, a spear. Even a person carrying one of these weapons on Shabbat, not even using it, is liable for a sin offering because this person is supposed to not go out carrying anything and you can't get around it saying, well, I was just wearing it. Rabbi Eliezer is the counterpoint guy and he says, well, you know what? No, like weapons are a little bit more like jewelry. It's an ornament. I'm just wearing my big knife so you can see how big my knife is, you know? So we're permitted therefore to wear, no, the rabbis say. Like, nice try, Rabbi Eliezer. And their words are fierce and impassioned. And this is, you know, these are the words of Rabbi Shai Held, uh, quoting the Mishnah. A person's weapons serve only as an indictment on them. For it is written in the prophets, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation and they shall not learn war anymore. You've heard that one from Isaiah, right? So inspired by that, they say, don't, don't even wear a sword. Even if you don't intend to use it, don't bring it. Don't wear it. Beat your swords into plowshares. Jewish tradition is not inherently pacifistic. On the contrary, right? Like the principle of Rodef gives the person being chased the right to stand up and kill that guy back. This is, by the way, the traditional Jewish justification for abortion. The fetus, if the fetus is endangering the life of the mother in any way, mental or physical, the mother is empowered to abort the fetus at any stage of pregnancy. And this is not just like progressive Jewish interpretation. This is longstanding Jewish interpretation. The fetus is considered a rodef, and so this is a practiced principle. This is this is you know not just sort of like an ancient Talmudic uh, an ancient Talmudic thing. Um, The principle of Rodef has been violently misused by Jews over the years to justify terrorism and murder, as you might imagine. For those of you who remember the murder of Yitzhak Rabin, the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, he was killed by an Orthodox Jew named Yigal amir who used the justification that Rabin, who was deep in the peace process with Yasser Arafat, was a Rodef because he was making concessions, because he was about to make concessions to the Palestinian Authority, which he and other, you know, a a not insignificant faction of Orthodox Jews interpreted as putting Jewish lives at risk and therefore labeling Yitzhak Rabin a rodef. I think it is possible that it was sort of rhetorical, you know, that they were using an ancient Jewish concept to sort of like label a guy an enemy of the state. However, when you do that, you incite violence, and he and he used the justification of rodef. You know, I was—he's a pursuer, and I, and I therefore, according to Jewish tradition, was under obligation to stop him. The state of Israel did not buy that defense. Yigal Amir is serving a life sentence plus six years. But this is the same justification that settler violence is based on in the West Bank and basically operating from a premise that the existence of a person can, constitutes a bodily threat to me, and I am therefore justified in defending myself against this person, even if they are not doing anything to provoke it. When Rabin was shot, he wasn't wearing a bulletproof vest. He had been advised to at the rally he was speaking at. It was a peace rally. But he thought it was so unlikely that anybody would bring a weapon to a public place and open fire when there was no present danger to them. And even as he stood up and he spoke, he reasonably thought that while people may have their deep ideological disagreements, surely no one would bring or use a lethal weapon at a public protest. Surely no one could confuse ideological disagreement with believing that he or she was actually in physical danger that would justify the use of lethal force or create a situation in which that became necessary. Unless your culture is one in which ideological disagreement is construed by leaders and culture creators as dangerous, as it's self-threatening. You know, like the other side is coming for you and your children in the night and therefore you'd better protect yourself. Then it makes sense to show up at a peace rally or a racial justice protest, armed and ready for battle. If Esau had in fact intended to kill Jacob, you know, as evidenced by holding out a weapon and coming right at him, Jacob would have been within his rights to strike him down first. But that idea terrified Jacob so much that he trembled and prayed that this would not be the outcome. And so he approached this person who he knew was his enemy, or should have been his enemy, with gifts, with with words, with gifts, by taking appropriate precautions. He did take appropriate precautions. He separated his family. He he tried to do um, what he needed to do to sort of keep himself and his family safe, but he also approached with arms outstretched as if to say, I am not looking for a fight. I'm not looking for a fight. This is actually, this is the Jewish way, to flip the script of history from one, to flip the script of the story, excuse me, from one whose history demands violent revenge, you think that the situation demands violence or revenge, and to flip it to a future that can be written by people using words and reconciliation over violence, who put their weapons down even as they tremble with fear. So Rabbi Nachman, the 18th century master, said, kol ha'olam kulo, right? kol lam kulo, gesher me'od, gesher me'od. The whole world is a very narrow bridge, a very narrow bridge. And the main thing to recall is not to fear, is not to fear at all. Heard this one? We started using a different tune that's also fun. I don't know where that one came from. It's kind of a campy tune. It's a good one. There's nothing wrong with it. Like the other tune, too. I've always wondered how to truly practice this principle. The lo klal, and the main thing is don't be afraid. People do stupid things when they're afraid, so don't be afraid. How do you do that? I I'm afraid. I have all kinds of things I'm scared of: climate change, drunk drivers, cancer. I mean, i like we could spend the rest of the night naming things that we're scared of. You know that I that I may one day be in the wrong place at the wrong time, that me or my children may be in the wrong place at the wrong time, but a place that I intend to be because of who I am, like my children's Jewish school, or a protest, or a rally, or services, and that somebody who feels ideologically threatened might come in and incite violence because they are so scared of me. It's such a weird thought, but that is so often what's happening. And then it becomes a little bit like Jacob and Esau, right? Who draws first? Will we let fear lead? Or will we call on something else, something higher, a higher emotional and cognitive ability that can help us transcend that fear the way that Jacob does? So that it's not that we're not afraid. It's that we're not letting our fear overcome our love, our pragmatism, our deeper desire to care for others and to create a society in which we and those around us are are free from the threat of violence, anybody else's or ours, where we don't let our fear justify taking actions that, in every context, should be considered a last resort. Okay, so sort of in closing, here we're moving into Hanukkah, great holiday, fraught with contradiction on this very subject. In the actual story of Hanukkah, the Jews who lived in the land of Israel feared for their lives, and they rose up violently against the Assyrian Greeks. That was the Maccabees. They were war heroes, and they defeated them with violence. The Maccabees took up arms against state power and were victorious, and they built a new state. And then not that many generations afterwards, that new state was destroyed. And the guys who were left after the dust of that war had cleared were the people who wrote the tradition we now practice today, the rabbis, the sages, the guys who wrote the Mishnah and the Talmud, who sort of invented the ethos that we've been discussing here tonight. And they rewrote the story so that the miracle of Hanukkah wasn't an unlikely violent military victory. It was that the little oil in the candle lasted for eight nights instead of one. And it's Hashem and it's a miracle and it's so beautiful. And, and that is a, I mean, lighting up the darkness, there's nothing wrong with that lesson. And those same rabbis during the holiday of Hanukkah put a particular Haftorah, a particular prophetic reading with the Torah reading. And that Haftarah includes the language, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says God. And then if you're Debbie Friedman, you end the sentence, shall we all live in peace? We can sing that later if you want. <laughs> um, these traditions we inherited and practice today come not from the Maccabees, but rather from the sages who created a tradition in which 2,000 years later, the Israeli poet Yehuda Amichai, in their tradition, could write this poem. And with this, I'm going to close. Don't stop after beating the swords into plowshares. Don't stop. Go on beating them and make musical instruments out of them. Whoever wants to make war again will have to turn them into plowshares first.
0: Shabbat shalom. You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, tune in to Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Mishkan Chicago. As always, we want to hear from you. On behalf of Teen Mishkan, thanks for tuning in.